eyes on me I met a strange lady She made me nervous She took me in and gave me breakfast And she said Do you come from a land down under? Yes, let's say a few words about a land down under, a land of wonder. We're referring, of course, to good old Australia. The Economist reports that voters down there are increasingly concerned about climate change. Their ruling Liberal Party, which despite its name is right of center, has a lot of young people frustrated at it and the governments for its failure to cut emissions of greenhouse gases. The economists speculate that one of the eastern suburbs of, of Melbourne, a uh, traditional liberal stronghold, uh, they might lose their seat to the Green Party. Magazine notes that few rich countries are as severely affected by climate change as Australia. Storms and cyclones strike the tropical north with increasing ferocity, and droughts are hitting harder and for longer in the south. Since the last federal vote, warming waters have killed, notes the magazine, much of the Great Barrier Reef. I hope that's a slight exaggeration. Recent poll in Australia found that 60% of the voters down there believe that climate change presents a critical threat to the country. Yet, it is the world's biggest exporter of coal, that fuel which causes the most pollution. Most of the country's power is still generated by coal. Relative to its population, Australia produces more emissions than almost any other rich economy. Politicians have been at war over what to do about this for a decade. The Labour Party lost two prime ministers to the problem before the Liberals came to power in 2013. The quagmire has since deepened. Tony Abbott, who was then the Liberal leader, axed a carbon tax introduced by Labour. Yes, Australia may have been the only major country in the world to have done what we all need to do, institute a carbon tax. And their government got rid of it. Abbott's liberal government also pared back a renewable energy target and cut funding for climate science. Nice. The Australian Conservation Foundation notes that no other rich country has put a price on carbon only to scrap it. Mr. Turnbull's successor, Scott Morrison, once declaimed an ode to a lump of coal in Parliament. His main policy on climate change is to lambast the Labour Party for promising to funnel subsidies to renewables, which it wants to see producing half of Australia's electricity by 2030, and to tighten vehicle emission standards, and to speed the uptake of electric cars. This will hurt the economy, Mr. Morrison says, and is a war on the weekend because it would disadvantage outdoorsy cars. Anyway, in somewhat of a follow-up piece on this, uh, in the May 4th issue, the magazine notes that a decade of political instability has left many voters disillusioned in Australia. The prime minister down there has changed five times since 2016, but only once because of an election. Magazine notes that last August... A brigade of staunch conservatives under Tony Abbott toppled the Liberals' popular leader Malcolm Turnbull. The Prime Minister's crime had been to attempt to set legally binding targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Oh yes, and they just had an election a couple weeks ago, and uh, he got re-elected. Well, I guess misery does love company, eh? You know, one thing I did appreciate when I first visited Australia, oh some 30-odd years ago, was that its newspapers were consistently worse than those here in the United States. It turns out there's 
one man to uh, answer for that, and that man would be Rupert Murdoch. The billionaire Australian media mogul was the, the feature of a long uh, piece in the New York Times magazine, which was forwarded to this show by uh, a friend of the program, Michael. He thought we'd find some useful stuff in it, and uh, I think we do. Apparently last January, Rupert Murdoch was sailing in the Caribbean with his wife, Jerry Hall, <laughs> Mick, J- Mick Jagger's ex, when he slipped and fell. He seemed to be in pretty bad shape, so he got airlifted out of there and was flown actually to Los Angeles, where doctors spotted a broken vertebra, which required immediate surgery, as well as a spinal hematoma. With the news of this serious injury, the family convened at his bedside. Murdoch said he didn't realize how serious his condition was until he looked up and saw all of his children at bedside. But to quote from the piece, Few private citizens have ever been more central to the state of world affairs than the man lying in that hospital bed. As head of a sprawling global media empire, he commanded multiple television networks, a global news service, a major publishing house, and a Hollywood movie studio. His newspapers and television networks have been instrumental in amplifying the nativist revolt that was reshaping governments, not just in the U.S., but also across the planet. His 24-hour news and opinion network, the Fox News Channel, had by then fused with President Trump and his base of hardcore supporters, giving Murdoch an unparalleled degree of influence over the world's most powerful democracy. In Britain, his London-based tabloid The Sun had recently led the historic Brexit crusade to drive the country out of the European Union. And, in the chaos that ensued, helped deliver Theresa May to 10 Downing Street. In Australia, where Murdoch's power is almost undiluted, his outlets had led an effort to repeal the country's carbon tax. Ooh, I've heard about this. A first for any nation, noted the New York Times, and pushed out a series of prime ministers whose agenda didn't comport with his own. So when they say there was a uh, rebellion of conservatives in The Economist, they're leaving out the fact that uh, leading that rebellion was evidently Mr. Rupert Murdoch. Notes in the piece that uh, only a few weeks before his fall on uh, the yacht, he'd shaken hands on a London rooftop with Robert Iger, the chief executive of the Walt Disney Company, consummating a preliminary agreement to sell his TV and film studios, 21st Century Fox, to Disney for a cool $52 billion. The article spends a great deal of time examining who the heir apparent in the Murdoch empire has appeared to be in recent years. Notes that over the years, sons Lachlan and James have traded roles as both heir apparent and jilted son. It was no secret to those close to the family, said the magazine, that Murdoch had always favored Lachlan. But it was James who spent the first decades of the 21st century helping reposition the company for the digital future. James and Lachlan were very different people with different politics. They were pushing the company toward different futures. James toward a globalized, multi-platform news and entertainment brand that would seem sensible to any attendee of Davos or reader of The Economist. Lachlan wanted something that was at once out of the past and increasingly of the moment, an unabashedly nationalist, far-right, and hugely profitable political propaganda machine. And uh, not to give away the ending of this piece, but uh, currently Lachlan is the favored son and likely to be the one directing the future course of News Corp. 
Now, even without 21st Century Fox, the sale of which appears to be going through, the organization is still very much a force to be reckoned with. In fact, the magazine goes through some of the high points of, uh, of his career, and it's probably worth mentioning a couple of these. It was Rupert Murdoch that founded Australia's first national general interest newspaper, The Australian, that gave him a powerful platform to help elect governments that eased national regulations designed to limit the size of media companies. He would eventually take control of nearly two-thirds of the national newspaper market. Again, as I say, when I visited 30 years ago, impressively crappy newspapers. And now you know why. With the construction of his Australian media empire underway, Murdoch moved on to Britain and Fleet Street, using his newest acquisition, the News of the World and The Sun, to successfully promote Margaret Thatcher's candidacy for prime minister. Once elected, her government declined to refer his acquisition of the Times of London to anti-monopoly regulators, giving him the country's leading establishment broadsheet to go along with his mass circulation tabloids. Television was next. After Murdoch lost the bidding for the British government's sole satellite broadcast license, Thatcher again came to his rescue, looking the other way when he started a rival service, Sky Television, which beamed programming into Britain from Luxembourg. The bigger Murdoch's empire became, the more power he had to clear away obstacles to further its expansion. His influence became an uncomfortable fact of British political life, and Murdoch seemed to revel in it. It's the sun what won it, the sun declared on its front page in 1992 after helping send the Tory leader, John Major, to 10 Downing Street by relentlessly smearing the character of his opponent, Neil Kinnock. Murdoch could switch parties when it suited his purposes and by ably supporting Britain's new labor movement in the 1990s, conservatives at the time had proposed regulations that would have forced him to scale back his newspaper operations in order to expand further into TV. Gee, you think those two are related? Murdoch used the same playbook in the United States. In 1980, he met Roy Cohn, the former advisor to Senator Joseph McCarthy and a Donald Trump mentor, who introduced him to Governor Ronald Reagan's inner circle. It was a group that included Roger Stone, another Trump confidant and the head of Reagan's New York operations, who said in a later interview that he helped Murdoch weaponize his latest tabloid purchase, the New York Post, on Reagan's behalf. In the 1980 election, Reagan's team credited Murdoch with delivering him that state that year. The Reagan administration later waived their prohibition against owning a television station and a newspaper in the same market. Hmm, what a coincidence. Allowing Murdoch to hold on to his big Metro dailies. The New York Post and the Boston Herald, even as he moved into TV in both cities. The administration of George Herbert Walker Bush suspended rules that forbade broadcast networks to own primetime shows or to profit from them. That, that move allowed Murdoch to build the nation's fourth broadcast network by rapidly filling out his schedule with shows from his newly acquired 20th Century Fox studio. Murdoch was helped by regulatory changes under Reagan, in particular the liberation of TV and radio operators from the government guidelines that ruled the public airwaves. The Reagan administration eliminated the Fairness Doctrine, which had for decades required broadcasters to present both sides of any major public policy debate. It spawned a new generation of right-wing radio personalities who were free to provide a different sort of opinion programming to a large, latent conservative audience mistrustful of the media in general. The magazine notes that if Murdoch's newspapers were a blunt instrument, Fox's influence was in some ways more subtle but far more profound. 
Hour after hour, day after day, it was shaping the realities of the millions of Americans who treated it as their primary news source. Anyway, there's a lot in this piece. I recommend that you check it out, dear listener. It's full of all sorts of interesting tidbits. Noting how son James was at one point the family's rebel. He pierced his ears, he dyed his hair, had a light bulb tattooed on his right arm. As an undergraduate at Harvard, he flirted with with becoming a medieval historian and joined the staff of the Harvard Lampoon before dropping out in 1995 to follow the Grateful Dead. That's what they tell me. Anyway, in 2000, James married Catherine Huffschmidt, a fashion marketing executive and part-time model, uh, whose more liberal policies made her an outlier in the Murdoch family. She argued frequently with her father-in-law over Fox's politics. The constant sparring grew tiresome for Murdoch, who worried that Catherine had too much influence over his younger son. And, you know, doggone it, before I leave the article, I've got to pull a couple more quotes here regarding Trump. The magazine notes that Murdoch had been deeply entwined with the Trump family. Trump had aggressively cultivated the New York Post during his rise to celebrity in the late 70s and 80s. Jared Kushner became close to Murdoch after he purchased the New York Observer in 2006. An improbable friendship blossomed between the octogenarian mogul and the 30-something publishing parvenu, with Murdoch and wife Wendy even taking Kushner and Ivanka on a vacation in the Caribbean on Murdoch's yacht. Rupert Murdoch recognized Donald Trump's appeal as a tabloid character and ratings driver, but he did not see him as a serious person, let alone a credible candidate for president. He's a friggin' idiot, Murdoch would say when asked about Trump. Three people close to him told the Times. Roger Ailes, the longtime head of Fox News, was no more generous, at least when Trump was out of earshot. Ailes was close to Trump, too. Their alliance dated back to Rudolph Giuliani's 1989 New York mayoral campaign, for which Ailes worked as a media advisor and Trump as a fundraising figure. It was Ailes who in 2011 gave Trump his regular Monday morning slot on Fox and Friends, which Trump used to advance his birther campaign. Still, Ailes ranted indignantly about the notion of a Trump presidency, saying he wasn't remotely worthy of the Oval Office. That's according to a person close to him who spoke to the Times. Anyway, great piece. The amount of favoritism that has been shown to Rupert Murdoch and News Corp uh, in regards to... uh, his mergers, as opposed to some other mergers which got stopped, which, well, coincidentally worked out to Rupert Murdoch's advantage. Uh, well, those details are something I'm going to leave you to find on your own, dear listener. Let's do some science stuff. I had to laugh at the news that uh, NASA had gone back and taken a look at all this seismograph data that astronauts, you know, had left on the moon to measure moon, measure lunar quakes, etc. And they concluded that uh, the moon was seismically active. This is not exactly fresh news. <laughs> I can't figure out why someone all of a sudden said, oh yeah, you know those, you know, those that quake detectors are left off on the moon? Yeah, they detected a bunch of quakes. I think this has to do with the fact that they now have left a seismometer on the Martian surface to measure Mars quakes, but it does leave me scratching my head. And there was one item that really struck me as coming out of left field, which was that astrophysicists have now determined that they believe that most of the Earth's plutonium must have gotten here from the 
interaction of two neutron stars, that somehow that two neutron stars whacking into one another would produce just the right amount of energy to produce these super high elements on the periodic table. Now, I'll confess, uh, I did not check the math on this because it's way, way over my head. But I got to wondering, what if it's true? I, I thought that these heavy elements were formed when you know, supernovas came about. Now they're saying, no, no, it looks like your everyday supernova doesn't have enough energy to do it. Unless it's a collapsar type of supernova about which I know nothing. But let's assume that whatever it was right before the solar system formed out of, you know, a cloud of gas and dust four and a half billion years ago. Let's assume that whatever it was that seeded the cloud and compressed it and shoved it together and, you know, did all kinds of cookbooky things to to make a, a solar system that we started out with a big old batch of plutonium keep in mind this is four and a half billion years ago so out of curiosity i looked up the half-life for plutonium and it turned out the most stable isotope of plutonium will have a half-life of about 80 million years so if you start out four and a half billion years ago and start clocking off you know segments of 80 million years at a clip, well, you're going to run through, what, something like 54 half-lives. And it turns out that, you know, 2 to the 54th power is, you know, something like 10 trillion. So, assuming we start out with a batch of plutonium here on planet Earth, and I guess Mars and Venus and the Sun and everything else in the solar system, we start out with a big bunch of plutonium. One ten trillionth of that would be left. Now, if you add that to a small amount of plutonium that would form naturally from the decay of, of, of uranium, well, you still wouldn't have a whole hell of a lot. Which is why, during the Manhattan Project, when they came to realize that you could make an atomic bomb using plutonium, there was no way to go out and find a source of it out in any kind of ore. You had to make it yourself inside of a nuclear reactor, which is what they did up in Washington State. And over the decades, you know, microgram by microgram, they've managed to make uh, quite a bit of it. Tons, I think. Tons? Oh, now i got to look it up. Well, it turns out, when you do look it up, that scientists and technicians have created 1,200 tons of uh, metric tons, that is, of plutonium since, uh, since the Manhattan Project. Oh, metric tons. We will leave it to you students of chemistry and physics to, uh, to work out uh, how much plutonium you, you would have left if you started out with, uh, you know, a mole's worth of, of plutonium atoms from the creation of the solar system. How much would you have left inside that lump of matter? And anyone who will send the math into us at info at radioparallax.com, we will, we will read your answer on the air. And we'll also give you an attaboy. But please, do not send us any actual plutonium. And uh, I do have to note my curiosity at some, one of those sponsored ads that appeared in, well, it appeared in my computer. And it, it referenced a small periodic table, which evidently is for sale, that contains embedded in the lucite tiny amounts, in most cases visible amounts, of the element in question. Seems like a pretty cool thing to have. In fact, I have to admit, I'm, I'm coveting my neighbor's goods on this particular item, which I suppose is better than coveting my neighbor's wife or bearing false witness, etc., etc. But 
I'm going to resist the temptation to shell out any dough and, and grab one of these things, although it does seem like a cool thing. I, I, did, I did have an element collection back when I was in high school, and I think I had at one point, I don't know, 20 different elements. I can remember my high school science teacher uh, taking a piece of lithium, or perhaps it was sodium, out of uh, the oil in which it was immersed to p- prevent it from interacting with the oxygen in the atmosphere and dropping it into water. Makes a pretty nice explosion. Oh, and speaking of high school, we, we speculated on last week's program about what high school students are being taught as regards global warming. Ms. Vermillion uh, queried his, his daughter as to what they were teaching her at, at, at age, what, 18? Uh, she's a junior this year. Okay, 16. Yeah, and the verdict was, <laughs> let me see if I get this quote right. You asked her if they were teaching it to her, and she said, I, I think they mentioned it in German. That's nearly an exact quote. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if that scares you, but it scares me. I go so far as to remark, Ach du lieber! <laughs> das ist nicht gut. But uh, this did prompt me to, uh, to reach out to, uh, actually, one of my high school teachers who lives not far from me. Uh, I believe he will make a welcome addition to this program in the not-too-distant future. He certainly pushed the envelope for the benefit of uh, we high school kids uh, many moons ago, for which we are grateful. Seems to me a lot of times when we're putting this show together, we're still grappling with the issues that, you know, we were trying to, to, to learn in high school. Questions in civics, questions in ethics, scientific questions, a look back at history. Even at one point, we thought about calling it Radio High School, but thought that was not good from a marketing standpoint. And plus, we find ourselves coming around full circle to the statement made on the show in the past that the way math is taught in, uh, in America probably should be a felony. A view we have never backed off on in spite of the fact that I know it irritates a, a great number of listeners. And yes, I once again want to add, you know, I like math. I think math is really cool. I think math can work miracles. So why must they teach it the way they do? Anyway, enough of that. One thing we don't talk about a great deal on this program is the subject of health. Even though I am and remain a licensed physician in the state of California, one reason for that is that some of the issues that, you know, we all care about the most, you know, what should we eat? What things are healthy for us? Well, the data is just way more of a gray area than we'd like. And this next health-based item is also in a gray area, but I'm going to go with it anyway. The news is that chemicals in sunscreens don't just sit on your skin after you apply them. They are quickly absorbed into the bloodstream. In an experiment by the Food and Drug Administration, 24 volunteers applied one of four common brands of sunscreen four times a day for four hours on parts of their body that wouldn't be covered by a swimsuit. The researchers then tested the blood for levels of four of the product's active ingredients, avobenzone, oxybenzone, octocrylene, and ecamsole. After the first day, levels of all four chemicals exceeded the toxicology threshold, which is the level above which the FDA recommends additional research. Three of the ingredients were still in the bloodstream after a week, with levels of oxybenzone, which has been linked to low testosterone levels, hormone changes, and shorter pregnancies, 40 times the FDA's threshold. The chemicals are among a dozen that the agency said needed to be examined by manufacturers before they can be considered, quote, generally safe and effective, unquote. 
but researchers urge people to keep using sunscreen, which can help prevent skin cancer while further research is being carried out. Co-author of the study, Teresa Michelle, told NBCNews.com, just because the chemicals are absorbed doesn't mean they are unsafe. And uh, we've we've talked about the Denisovans, and this branch of the human family tree that we know very little about because we have so little specimens uh, to work with. Well, it turns out we have some updates on that particular story. The Washington Post has reported that four decades ago, a Tibetan Buddhist monk found what he thought was part of a person's jawbone in a limestone cave that was about two miles above sea level. Scientists have discovered that the mandible, in fact, belonged to a 160,000-year-old Denisovan. Until recently, the only known remains of the species, which just appeared 50,000 years ago, came from a single site, the Denisova Cave, 1,400 miles away in Siberia. Scientists had puzzled over why the Siberian Denisovans had a gene mutation, also present in modern-day Sherpas and modern-day Tibetans, that would help them live in low-oxygen, high-altitude environments. Well, they were puzzled over that given that this cave was only 2,300 feet above sea level. This new discovery in Tibet suggests that Denisovans roamed widely across Central and Eastern Asia, including its great mountain ranges, and likely interbred with prehistoric Homo sapiens. Study co-author Frido Welker from the University of Copenhagen hopes to re-examine other Asian fossils that share characteristics with the 160,000-year-old jawbone. Maybe they too will one day turn out to be Denisovans, he said. Well, maybe. All right, in the four minutes or so we have left, we'd like to do a little bit of forward promoting. In the next couple of weeks, we will be bringing you Barry Strauss, the author of Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine. Noted the book jacket, Rome laid the foundations of the West, and its legacy still shapes us today in so many ways, from language, law, and architecture, to the seat of the Roman Catholic Church. Strauss examines this enduring heritage through the lives of the men who made it. Augustus, Tiberius, Nero, Vespasian, Trajan, Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius, Septimus Severus, Diocletian, and Constantine. Individuals I think we would all do well to know a little bit about. We're going to do what we can to bring the Sacramento News and Reviews' Jeff Von Kainel back to the program. He is a busy guy, and through a fault mainly of our own, we have failed to make that connection in the last couple of weeks, but we will, we will try harder. And late next month, we hope to attend events uh, taking place in regards Charlie Chaplin Days in Niles, California, which is a district currently of Fremont, California. The Niles SNA Silent Film Museum will be putting on a three-day event, which I think will be well worth um, our time to check out and report on to you. You may want to think about marking your calendar out uh, for that event, which will be on the 28th, 29th, and 30th of June, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We want to put a plug in for the Sacramento News and Review, which noted that... uh, Although Michelle McNamara didn't live long enough to see her deep dive into the dark mythos of the Golden State Killer, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, become a global publishing hit or foreshadow the arrest of a suspect in the 40-year-old cold case. The paperback edition of the book is out now and includes the Sacramento News Review's cover story about the aftermath in its appendix. 
Written by former SNNR editor Rachel LeBrock, the 2,400-word feature blends LeBrock's own intersection with McNamara's reporting process and original interviews with investigators who worked the case. That does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Lloyd Lindsay Young. Actually, Douglas Everett. Whatever did happen to Lloyd Lindsay Young? Who's Lloyd Lindsay Young? Well, I'll have to wait till next week's show.